So in Texas, they are giving new meaning to the phrase thirst trap as Governor Abbott signs into law uh, taking away the water breaks for construction workers. And more cowbell. Recent article in the New York Times discloses research that shows that chronic exposure to loud noises actually hurts our health. Well, speaking of loud noises, we've got 4th of July coming up uh, as we're recording. We're just ahead of that weekend. And we know that it's America's birthday. But there's another country taking the idea of a national birthday very literally. Every citizen in South Korea will become one or perhaps two years younger this coming New Year's. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, Births of a Nation, we talk to one of the freshest voices in women's health, Dr. Brittany Barreto, who is the host of Femtech Focus and has her finger on the pulse of all things innovative on, in women's health, uh, but couches them in a really interesting history of how we kind of got to where we are. So really excited to talk to her uh, in just a few minutes. I'm one of your co-hosts here of the Green Docs, uh, Nate DiNicola. I'm a perpetually post-call OBGYN in Southern California. And I'm the environmental health expert for uh, two societies you've probably never heard of called ACOG and FIGO. But these are the national OBGYN societies, ACOG, and international OBGYN societies, uh, FIGO, that basically make all the new guidelines for uh, how we take care of, of pregnant women and uh, new policies for gynecology. And I'm Bruce Picard, an OB in San Diego. A uh, longtime climate activist and the lead author of the paper in JAMA, which was the first large-scale review of climate impacts on pregnancy. So, Nate, we haven't talked for a little while. What's going on this week? Well, I, I took a dog for a bike ride in a backpack. We have uh, uh, Kendall and I uh, have uh, a French bulldog named Agni, and uh, in Huntington Beach, they had the Purina, uh, incredible dog challenge where they, it's, it's on ESPN actually. And they have like dogs chasing Frisbees and catching them in midair. And, uh, you would think they brought air bud out of retirement. Like it was incredible watching these dogs leap four and five feet in the air, catching these Frisbees. So we, uh, we took Dagna down there to, to watch and give her some inspiration and, uh, managed, managed to get there on the bikes with Dagny riding on the back, which, uh, I thought that was kind of the hard job, but really, I think Kendall filming it while riding the bike behind me was the real, <laughs> the, the real like expert level navigating. I think you were all at some degree of risk on that journey. How did the dog like the uh, the contest? Did it did it start? Does Dagny now want to start chasing frisbees? Well, she's been doing a lot more parkour lately, up and down the couch. So she's looking for ways to kind of vault herself. <laughs> Wow. Well, there you go. Culture yeah. in Huntington Beach for the dogs. How about you, Bruce? What, what have you been up to? Uh, I guess the most thrilling news over here is that the sun's finally come out. You know, we've been, we've been, uh, we had a very long rainy winter, which was great. But then it was followed by our typical foggy, overcast uh, spring. And uh, just in the last week, the sun has started to come out every day reliably for literally the first time in probably six months. And it makes such a difference around here. I just, I, I not only have a, you know, have a brighter mood, but I think all the people that I'm running into, we all talk about it. We're all just rejoicing. So it feels like summer's finally arriving, which is great. So have you gotten in the water at all? Caught in any waves? I was in last week. I'm thinking about going, but then again, it's the 4th of July weekend, so I think all manner of flotsam and jetsam will be out there in the water, and it'll be a, uh, a little bit of a different experience. But yeah, the water's warming up, so I'll be getting back in. All right, Nate, talk to me about this story in Texas. What's going on with, with uh, the governator there? 
Yeah, well, I think California seeks to claim the governator as Schwarzenegger, who uh, incidentally, he, he signed my medical school diploma, Governor Schwarzenegger, because uh, Gray Davis had been removed in the recall election. And so he was the governor when I graduated medical school from University of California, Irvine. And uh, yeah, that's Schwarzenegger's autograph. Uh, but the governor of Texas, uh, Abbott, yeah, signed this law. I, I think if you got really into the weeds of it, they would probably say it's uh, you know kind of just removing some uh, specific laws in these municipalities. But the essence of it is that it it no longer it takes away the current mandate for uh, water breaks for these construction workers, and the status quo isn't even great. Like they get a ten minute break every four hours of this really arduous uh, outdoor intense you know work in kind of intense heat. Uh, it seems like poor timing as this comes in the middle of, you know, every year it's historic. But but yet again, a historic heat wave in Texas. Uh, they're they're one of the states with the most health heat related deaths in the last four years. So um, it, it doesn't look like it's going to be helping these workers much. No, obviously it, it is not prioritizing the workers when you read about it, because I've, I've seen that story, too. They talk about how. You know, these were such onerous regulations that forced employers to give their human employees a 10-minute break to rest and get out of the sun and, and rehydrate every four hours. And we talked about this in episode five with Mary Marshall, just all the health risks that are associated with exposure. It's not just uh, that these temperatures are uncomfortable for construction workers and anybody else working outside. I mean, they can be deadly. And they can also send people to the hospital. There are an awful lot of things that uh, heat puts people at risk for. And our data in our paper was about preterm birth and low birth weight and stillbirth tied to elevated temperatures. And it's not just guys. It's women working outdoors, too. So the, this, to me, is, is inhumane. And uh, I, I just think, especially in light of the fact that temperatures are well up over 110 degrees uh, for several days in a row in Texas, this is really not going to land well with people there. Yeah, I mean, at a time when when you and I and many other health professionals are are spreading this message that heat poses real health risks, particularly in, in our case for, for pregnant women who are our patients, this is like the wrong direction. The, the only uh, kind of buffer to this that, that I saw, and it's not a related story in, in that the same agencies aren't at work, but... Uh, if there's any kind of silver lining uh, to look for here, there uh, just was a new federal uh, legislation passed called the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which is kind of squishy in its in its outline, but it does it does require employers to provide I'm using quotes here reasonable accommodations for uh, pregnant employees. So nothing groundbreaking, I don't think. This was this is often baked into. Uh, you know, what we see as, as OBGYNs already, but this does kind of codify it in federal law. And I don't know, but perhaps can uh, counter some of the effects of local laws like, like this one. Hopefully it will. Uh, and speaking of, of uh, unintended health consequences, this story in the New York Times about research that now shows that chronic exposure to loud noises isn't just uncomfortable and, and unwanted, it's actually dangerous to people's health. Uh, this to me is really interesting, and I think a lot of us have suspected that there might be some ill health effects from uh, from loud noises. But this was a really interesting article uh, because it included uh, video of, of vignettes that were taken in various locations around the country. And uh, on the side of the videos is a decibel meter that actually shows the sound impact of a plane flying overhead or trucks driving by. And you can just see how sound levels jack up drastically at certain times. And now there's a physiologic exp explanation for why this seems to be really unhealthy. Uh, because the body interprets these loud noises, particularly if they're sudden and, and really loud, uh, as a stress, which precipitates uh, our stress reaction within our bodies. You get an increased level of cortisol, uh, Certain parts of the brain are triggered uh, that tense up the body in various ways. Inflammation can be the result of that. You get higher blood pressure, stiffened arteries, and uh, this can lead to premature deaths, and apparently it does not uncommonly. Uh, the World Health Organization has set levels 
that are felt to be safe for sound uh, for the population. And if you use their levels, which are somewhat outdated, they're actually pretty high at 50 decibels, more than a third of people living in the United States are at that level or higher, uh, intermittently at least. It's certainly worse in low-income areas, where have we heard that story before? Um, so this is evolving science, as we like to point out. But I think there, the way that I turn this one around to look for something positive is as we transition away from loud, noisy, fossil fuel burning trucks and, and uh, other things powered by, uh, you know, like leaf blowers and things like that, uh, as we move towards electrification or clean energy fueling a lot of uh, a lot of the transportation needs that we have, I think it's very possible that we'll see significant decreases in background noise levels, which would be a benefit to all of us. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the World Health Organization because that's the, the first place my mind went when you mentioned this story. Well, okay, that, that's not true. The first place my mind went was you're absolutely right. We need more cowbell. This podcast has been for a long time needing more, more cowbell. Second place my mind went was the World Health Organization. Uh, and it's because in, <laughs> it feels so much better. That was a good decibel. That, that was just right. <laughs> uh, back in 2017, when uh, I was invited to, to join uh, this World Health Organization initiative with uh, Jeannie Connery and Linda Judice. The, the idea for, with our invitation there was that we were going to work on global um, women and children's health from the lens of environmental factors. And uh, I think a lot of us thought we were going to be working on the big picture things, like we we're working on um, worldwide air pollution, uh, worldwide rising sea levels, increased uh, heat. And at first, it was kind of disappointing when we were uh, kind of guided that this would only be modifiable environmental factors. And so if we couldn't kind of instantly change it, like you can't instantly change the heat outside, that it wasn't going to be the focus of this, of this uh, initiative. And that kind of took some steam out of, out of us uh, at first. But then when they turned it to things that were modifiable, uh, even though it was kind of a different scale, at least there were things you could do. And one of the big ones they mentioned was this indoor noise level. Uh, particularly the pediatricians were really lobbying for efforts to be put to uh, first monitor, but really then regulate how much noise children are exposed to. And if we think that cities here uh, locally in the U.S. are bustling at all hours of night, uh, I, I can tell you from some experience personally traveling internationally and, and to what these international experts were saying, uh, it's nothing compared to what noises are, are kind of present in some uh, cities worldwide. I mean, like just for example, when I when I stepped out of the Delhi airport at 3 a.m., it was like the middle of of Times Square in New York. Uh, there there was no slowdown. So I think it's yeah, I think you're right. I think not only is it an important kind of environmental factor to consider that we don't usually quote hear a lot about, but uh, it might be a nice secondary benefit to a lot of these um, renewable energies that tend to be quieter. Yes, and I really think it's important for us to continue to stress this point that most of the changes that we need to make, if not all, are going to be things that add to the quality of our lives. But just imagine what it would be like to be living near what are now pretty noisy, busy roads if those roads were primarily uh, used by electrified vehicles. How much different that would be, not not only in terms of the just the kind of constant background noise that we, we accept... Uh, but also the quality of the air that we'd be breathing uh, if we lived near those places. So I think there's so much reason for optimism, uh, thinking about the directions that we need to go now to stabilize nature. So um, to me, there's a there's a silver lining to this story. I'm glad we know about this problem, but I'm also excited to see the solutions begin to uh, reveal themselves in, in ways where we get uh, unanticipated uh, other benefits. Anyway, Nate, we have something very exciting. We have our first listener question for our podcast, so I'd like to bounce this one off of you. Well, we, we'll do that in a second, but we, we can't forget about South Korea. Oh, they're yes. All, they're all getting two years younger. Can you believe that? <laughs> they're all... So let me give you the background to this. In, in South Korea, when a child is born, they, uh, up until you know, this new um, enactment, 
the child is born at and they're and they're deemed to be one year old, uh, kind of based on you know the obvious that the gestation is nine to ten months, so you're already most of the way there, and you're born, you're one year old at that point, and then I think I got this right. I did some reading on it. I couldn't quite tell how it works, but then basically on January first of every year, everybody gains the next year. So like if you're born on Fourth uh, of July this year, you're already one year old. And then on January 1st, you become two years old and, and so on. And that's just how they keep track of it. But apparently this was creating some, I mean, I, I already feel a little confused. Uh, so there was some confusion on this and how it relates to, uh, you know, like everything from retirement age to military enrollment to all kinds of things that might have some uh, international dimensions. And so uh, there was an overwhelming uh, public support for switching to uh, what I guess is called the international standard, which is where you're you're born, and that's the clock starts at zero, and then you just gain a year every year on your birthday. You know what this reminds me of, and and you weren't born yet, but there was a movie called Bananas that Woody Allen uh, wrote and starred in back in the '60s, I think. And at one point, this this so-called banana republic, uh, the crazy leader. Uh, who got elected came out with two rules immediately, two new laws. The first one was all people shall now wear their underwear on the outside. And the other rule was all children under the age of five will now be five. And they were just kind of making the point that uh, he was off his rocker, I think. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting in that it it did uh, in a much smaller scale bring up what often comes up in patient questions about like, how far along is my gestation really? You know, because if you go back to like what people can sometimes pinpoint as the conception date, you know, like there was only one time this couple could have conceived, so that's the date, and they map out the, the weeks, it doesn't always match exactly how we have their, their due date. And there can be a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of confusion around it. And, and so, you know, we have to kind of explain that this method we have when we assign the due date, it's always the, the, the acronym is EDD, estimated due date. Like it's always kind of understood to not be precise, but we had to pick some common language. And so we use a combination of last period and first ultrasound. But, but it's all, you know, it, it is all just acknowledging that this is biology. There's variation. It's kind of squishy and it's never uh, exactly precise. But uh, this does kind of reconcile that concept, you know, that, the baby, even when they're born at, say, 39 weeks or 40 weeks, it might be a little bit different in terms of how old it actually is. What is going on over there, Nate? Are you, are you building another room onto your, onto your apartment, or what's going on? You know, the, uh, the municipal of Newport Beach heard you calling for more cowbell, and they've added it. <laughs> <laughs> There's, like, mover trucks outside. It was perfect timing for your headline. Yeah, well, we'll have to thank them in some way that makes them never return. Okay, good. So now let's jump to that listener question, because we always want to acknowledge the questions that we get. And uh, Sam from San Francisco sent us a question. He said that, I heard somewhere that there are adverse health effects for women who do not have a child. In other words, the risk of certain diseases increases if a woman does not get pregnant, is this true? And is this a concern given that birth rates globally are going down? That's a great question. I love how he tied it to international fertility trends. I mean, that's a really advanced question. So overall, I think the answer to this is no. There's not serious risks for women who, say, don't ever carry a pregnancy. I'd flip it around a little bit more and just say, there are some benefits sometimes to things that uh, interrupt regular ovulation and regular periods. So often that can be pregnancy, which would interrupt ovulation for, say, at least nine to 10 months and then postpartum, say, another you know, six months or so. Uh, but we can also kind of achieve that in a different way with, with medications like uh, oral birth control pills. Uh, some types of IUDs can inhibit ovulation. And I guess we'll get a little sciencey here because we're the experts. So we want to explain the medicine behind this. The, the kind of mechanism at play, especially for things like uterine cancer, 
is chronic unopposed estrogen. Uh, so things that interrupt ovulation, like pregnancy or like uh, kind of long-term birth control, will uh, not expose the uterus to as much chronic unopposed estrogen, and that will then decrease risk for things like uterine cancer. I have seen data about uh, lower breast cancer rates if women reproduce prior to the age of 20. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that if you don't have a child by the age of 20, you have a, an increased risk compared to the rest of the population. It's just uh, apparently, at least from a statistical standpoint, it is protective uh, to be pregnant or, as you say, also uh, to be on certain forms of contraception hormonally that give the menstrual cycle a rest. Yeah, that's right. Protective, that's a good word to use. Uh, and it might seem like counterintuitive in some ways, like like for a woman, say, who has um, a strong family risk for breast cancer or ovarian cancer with the uh, what I think is pretty widely known now, the BRCA, or the BRCA mutation. If a, if a young woman is known to have that BRCA mutation, uh, the recommendation actually is to have them on birth control pills for a while before they're thinking about getting pregnant to, yeah, interrupt ovulation, interrupt menstruation. And it's thought to be protective for at least ovarian cancer, but uh, I think you're right, probably breast cancer too. Great. Okay, we'll be right back with our interview. Now we are delighted to be joined by one of the freshest voices in women's health. She has a doctorate in molecular and human genetics from Baylor. Uh, she's the founder of a company called Pheromore, spelled the PH, like pheromones, uh, which is the first DNA-based dating app. We're definitely going to hear about that. She's a serial entrepreneur, and of course, she is the host of the podcast Femtech Focus, joined by Dr. Brittany Barreto. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Thank you so much for being here. I know you've had an incredibly busy week. How did the Revitalization Summit go? Um, it was amazing. We had the former FDA commissioner on as our keynote talking about female involvement in the COVID-19 clinical trials um, and the importance of women for vaccine adherence. So one quick fact for your listeners is the most important person to getting other people vaccinated is women. In fact, adult white males, the one critical person that could convince them to get a vaccine was their mother. And so when we think about healthcare and, you know, um, prevention of disease, we got to think about women. We got to put women first because we really are the chief medical officers of our families. In, in the case where your mom's a nurse, she might have actually given you the vaccine, as, as I experienced. <laughs> Whether you wanted it or not. Whether you wanted it or not. <laughs> Can't leave the dinner table until, yeah. Got to just ask, because uh, we want to set up some uh, basic knowledge with our listeners. I was a little confused about this term femtech when I first heard it. Can you just translate what the heck femtech is for, for everybody? Absolutely. So the word femtech was coined in 2016 by Ida Tin. She is the founder of Clue, one of the most used period tracking apps in the world. And she was trying to describe what innovating for female health was because she was trying to get the point across that it's not just regular health tech because when it comes to female health there are so many other considerations that one must take into account and we can go into some of that but it, it is very trivial women are uh complex but in the most beautiful insightful and opportunistic way and so um essentially the backdrop to science has been based on a male paradigm unfortunately medicine and science has assumed that women were small men and so as long as we just studied males we can extrapolate that into females and that's not the case hormones are systemic they affect every blood vessel in your body so you know the reason why we have disproportionate number of headaches and migraines during our period is because our hormones are telling our uterus to bleed, right? And so all the blood vessels in your body are affected. Um, long story short, women have five times more side effects from therapeutic drugs than males do. 95% um, of animal models are male only. 75% of the cell lines we use are male cells. And so when we're screening for compounds that could potentially have some kind of a cure or treatment, and we're only using male cells to screen the compounds, we potentially are missing out on solutions. And so all that kind of history there to say, 
This word femtech is innovation in women's health and wellness, and it includes solutions to conditions that solely disproportionately or differently affect female women and girls. And I'll break that down real fast. Solely is the things you think you know about women's health, periods, pregnancy, menopause. But women's health also includes the things that differently affect us. So heart disease, the way that heart disease manifests in a female heart is very different than a male heart. When you go to the ER thinking you have a heart attack, the blood test they run, they're looking for a biomarker that's only elevated when males have heart attacks. And that's still the standard of care. So when we talk about women's health, we have to think about things like heart attacks and then disproportionately affecting women. Autoimmune disease, over 90% of autoimmune patients are female. And so we, if we are studying a condition and not looking at sex as a biological variable, we're really missing the bigger picture. And the last thing I'll say is female women and girls, because not everyone who identifies as a woman has a, has a vagina. And we should be mindful of all the pelvic floors and uteruses out there. So that's femtech. So Brittany, that all makes perfect sense. Uh, this would be the, the field of technology devoted to you know everything you said, broadly women's health. Uh, so why is there some pushback on this phrase? Uh, I think the first time I encountered some pushback was actually at that conference we were at together in Tel Aviv, where, you know, yeah. we mentioned Femtech and some of the companies there were like, whoa, 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 we're don't don't, you know, box us in like that. We're not Femtech <laughs> while they're doing like menstrual apps. And so what's the yeah. pushback? Well, there's a different different things. I think that, you know, the word tech kind of leaves out things like therapeutics. And so we see pharmaceutical companies that are working in women's health and not liking that term. And when they are your potential future acquirer, you tend to take on their attitudes. So um, that's actually why our consulting firm is called Fem Health Insights. And pharma loves that. Fem health, female health. Okay, good, good. You know, we're, at, we're not just uh, apps. But I think femtech is nevertheless important, one, as a white-labeled term to get us more funding out of Silicon Valley. Um, those folks love a, a two-syllabled word, fintech, femtech, clean tech, right, uh, biotech, you know? And so femtech was our way of having a, a way to converse with them and, and let them know that we weren't just regular health tech. And, you know, admittedly, I don't even I don't even care for the word femtech because my ultimate goal is that it is just healthcare. But until half of the booths at the healthcare conferences and half of the talks at the healthcare conferences are about vaginas and the female experience, we need our own industry name. And I my favorite thing about having a name is that we can find each other. I started my podcast Femtech Focus in uh, the pandemic lockdown March 2020, and within a few weeks, I had a few thousand listeners. Not because I was running ads but because people were interested in femtech and they Googled it and we were finally able to start to find each other because if you Google women's health, you might bring up your local Weight Watchers Club, right? Like you, that doesn't necessarily bring you to innovation in female health and femtech allows us to find one another. So that's, that's my feelings about it. I'm like, hate it or love it, whatever. We have a word and we're gonna use it to our advantage. I, I think it strikes me immediately when I think about that whole uh, arena is that it's about time that uh, we had uh, a focus on the differences in the in physiology uh, between women and men, and uh, as as I often hear, you know, women are fifty one percent of the population. How can we not be uh, orienting uh, healthcare in in their direction? Uh, and, and by the way, we're responsible for 100% of the population. We're birthing, <laughs> right? Like, so we like to say women's health is everyone's health. Yes, and I think one of the other quotes that caught my eye that came from you was that economies will grow if we make women healthy. How, how do you put those two together? Well, unfortunately, women being in pain has not moved the needle on uh, people putting money into female health solutions. And so one of the things that we do at Fem Health Insights is look at what are the economic potentials of investing in women's health. And unfortunately, money talks, it moves needles, it gets people activated, gets people to move. And so what we have found is that, um, I'll give you an example, uh, there is a huge economic burden of uh, female-specific conditions. Let's take endometriosis, for example. So endometriosis is when your endometrial lining, which is the tissue that comes out during your period, is actually outside of the uterus. They That tissue actually still responds to your hormones telling you to menstruate. So it's essentially like internal bleeding, really bad, really uncomfortable, super painful. And that leads to an average of 20 days of missed work per year for folks with endometriosis. 
10% of females have endometriosis. So if you have, let's say, 1,000 female employees, and we'll let's just assume 100 of them, 10%, have endometriosis, and 100 of your employees are missing 20 days of work per year, that is affecting your bottom line. And so one of the big business models we actually see growing in female health and femtech is a direct-to-employer as a benefit. So we even see apps, for example, going to employers saying, hey, we crunched the numbers, you're spending about five million dollars a year in extra healthcare costs for the folks that you're uh, in, you know, in your company that have endometriosis. Also, you're losing this much money because is how many days they missed. How about you sign a contract with us for a hundred thousand, save you know four point eight million, and allow all of your female employees to have an app that helps them track if their symptoms for endometriosis and helps them with like dietary or different lifestyle suggestions. Employers are like, yes, okay, sign us up. We're in. We're totally in. And then it's also great for their DEI because they are attracting and retaining strong female talent. And so when we start to put female health in those terms, employers start to care, right? Even if they don't understand what endometriosis is, they don't understand that why are those women taking 20 days off? It's because they're bleeding through and create like a lot of pads. They're, they're cramped over. They're nauseous. They have terrible diarrhea, like who knows and who cares? Like when you can talk to employers about their bottom line being affected and a, a, a cheaper solution, they get more involved. Now, I wish that we could just say, hey, women deserve better. And everyone says, you're absolutely right. Let's go for it. But, you know, we're using the economic lever to make people to have change. And are you getting traction with that economic lever? Because uh, I, I, I'm always fascinated by the projections that I see for the kind of evaluation of femtech broadly. Uh, I, I, I gave a presentation last year and it was around $70 billion was like the projection yeah. in, in that. So, and I just saw a, a paper a few like a month, months ago that had the projection in the trillions. And these sound far-fetched, but like I, I remember when I was at Brookings back in 20, I don't know, 2012, 2013, they were projecting telehealth at the time to be in the 14 billion range by this present time. And they were right. Like those projections came true. So do you think we're good at, like on our way to, to trillions of dollars? 100%. So I think that the we've actually published a $1.1 trillion market size by 2027. We believe that that number is actually significantly undercounted. A lot of times companies will publish, you know, the typical number is 50 billion. Frost and Sullivan published that. But, you know, let me just give you some other stats. The menstrual product, and we're going to get into menstrual products and their impact on uh, the climate and sustainability in a moment, but let's just take that market size. It's a $37 billion market just for pads and tampons alone. How the hell are you going to tell me the rest of women's health, from breast cancer to babies, fertility, menopause, all of that is just $14 billion more? I, I can't believe it. And so we crunched the numbers. And what we found, first of all, was that a lot of things in women's health have never been researched by somebody looking at market sizes. So I'll give you two examples. One is PMS, the symptoms that women experience right before they start to menstruate. Um, nobody's calculated how much money women are spending on like heating pads or aspirin or like other products that they might need to get through their PMS. Nobody's calculated the market size of PMS, okay? Like that, okay, so we don't even have a number for that, wasn't even included. Another one, um, tubal ligation or having your quote unquote tubes tied, right? A lot of women have that procedure. Nobody has quantified the market value for that. And that's actually kind of easy. Just find out the cost of it and then times it by how many people do it in a year and that give or take your market size. Still, no one's done that. And so we took things that were already cited, already published, and we already got to 1.1 trillion. So I can't even imagine if we actually filled in the gaps for all the rest of women's health. It's it's uh, mind-boggling. These numbers get so big, I think most of us have a hard time really understanding what that means. But clearly, we're talking about a huge uh, potential in this market. But I'm sure part of what you're bumping up against is just you're talking to a lot of men about women's health problems. And in my prior lifetime, I co-wrote a book and taught a class for men about, about women's health issues for, for guys only for five years. And it was just such an interesting thing uh, to do because it, men have just, I think, never been exposed to a lot of this terminology. They don't know what these things mean. They, they feel this uh, intense desire when their partners are struggling with a female health problem to try to fix things, to, you know, to make it go away. Uh, 
I know that the bulk of the people that you're talking to uh, regarding financing for startups are, are men. Uh, are you having any any challenges just getting them to, to, to sit still in the room when you bring up topics around uh, around estrogen and uteruses and uh, things like that? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And what I will say is that um, I love men. Femtech loves men. Fem Health Insights love men. Uh, in fact, I think it, the part of the problem is that men are not involved enough. The problem, I think, started when we separated boys and girls to learn about pe periods and penises when we were little kids, right? And there's it hasn't changed. So I'll go to a major health conference and the next topic, the next panel is on women's health and I'll see all the men stand up and leave. And I've asked them, why are you leaving? Like, what what's up? And honestly, their response is most of the time, like vast majority, it's not because they're like, I hate women. No, the vast majority of the time, they think they're being respectful. They're saying, oh, well, I, I didn't want to like intrude on this topic that's for women. And it that's the issue. It This is not a topic for women. This is a topic for everyone. Like I said, yes, we're 51% of the population. We're responsible for 100, right? So we need men to not to see that the respect is sitting down and listening and asking questions. You know, I always tell people I have my podcast. So folks know I love to talk about vaginas and I have no, no restrictions on it. The number of questions I get from men that are like, how many tampons does a woman even use? How many days does she even bleed? Like, uh, they, they really basic questions. They're like, you know, what does an abortion look like at nine months? And I'm like, that's not a thing, you know, like, you know, what, you're right. And so that education part is so important, especially, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but especially as we're making laws around women's bodies, we need to understand we still consider the first day of your pregnancy as the last day of your last period which is on average 10 days before your egg even comes out. How are we considering the first 10 days of your pregnancy, your egg's not even out, right? And so we need to have a basic biological understanding of the female body in order to decrease stigma, in order to elevate innovation, in order to have conversations that even make sense. And, you know, for me, like I said, one of the, the carrots that I'm using is here's all the financial gains you can get in women's health. And then also just approaching it without a sense of anger. Uh, just, um, you know, so if you're, you're a female activist listening to this, I'm just as angry as you are. I'm just as charged up as you are. But my experience has been as long as I am approachable, men have questions. And I think the more men's questions we answer, the more involved they're going to get, the more they realize this isn't that scary. This is it angry feminists that are out to get me instead i mean sex tech is part of femtech like y'all guys come on over like learn about our bodies you know um so uh yeah that's where i'll leave it for now and and what we universally heard from the guys that went through this class or read the book was that their relationships got better not because they had advanced understanding of these things but just because they were willing to engage and listen and as you said ask questions so yeah. uh, now that gets applied to funding, hopefully, and then this market does get into those trillion-dollar valuations. We're getting there. We certainly are getting there. I'm very optimistic. Well, you, you mentioned the exact topic that we covered uh, when we introduced this episode in our headlines about you know, the, the discrepancy between, say, an estimated due date and how long the gestation actually has been there. Uh, South Korea, for a while, had solved this by having babies born at one year of age and then turning an extra year every January 1st. And so they've now just changed that so that you are born at zero years and uh, you just make a year on your birthday. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting how, yeah, how little insight there is into some of these just very basic, basic things. Well, I actually asked a, like a historian, why do we do that? Why do we count it as the last day versus the day of, of fertilization? Um, and they said that historically, doctors didn't believe that women would know the day that they got pregnant, but they could know about the last time they were bleeding. And that's that's honestly speaking to medical gaslighting and the unfortunate uh, the system, right? So that's why, again, femtech is an industry because there is a system issue here. And the system is this paradigm of healthcare thinking women are incompetent or don't know our own bodies. I recently saw a study come out that was titled, uh, Women Were Right, COVID-19 Vaccine Affected Their Periods. And I was like, why doesn't that title say, here's why the COVID-19 vaccine affected women's periods? Like, why did they have to study if women were telling the truth, right? And, um, so still today, we're researching things that is essentially like, are women reporting their pain correctly? And it's like, can we please ask the right question? What's causing them pain and how to stop it? Yeah. Yeah, Brittany, I, I can't tell you how many uh, 
endometrial biopsies and hysteroscopy DNCs I did for postmenopausal bleeding that that the women claimed were related to the vaccine. And, you know, because the, the data wasn't certain at the time, we kind of couldn't say much yeah. about it. Uh, but in retrospect, it's pretty clear that's what happened. Um, you know, I'm not going to give away patient confidential information, but like th- th- there was no cancer in any of these. So it sure looks like it was related to the vaccine. And, mm-hmm. you know, conversations like you're having with the FDA hopefully makes this kind of more studied deliberately from the beginning uh, in the future. Well, I'll just tell you that I mentioned to the FDA commissioner that menstrual health or your menstrual cycle is kind of like a fifth vital sign. I'm a little upset to say that how big his eyes got when I said that in terms of like being surprised, like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm like, please don't be surprised by this. But sure, (laughs) you know, Um, and he admitted, you know, one of the things they didn't do is track or ask when was the last day of your last period, because potentially, you know, um, there's we have yet to see any long term negative consequences necessarily from this. But what if we were able to say um, if you got your vaccine right before your period started, that's when these things happened. And so therefore, you should get your vaccine right after your period or, you know, during this day or that day. In fact, we should be doing that with all medications. So, for example, Parkinson's disease, females who are menstruating with Parkinson's disease report um, more severe symptoms while menstruating. And so doctors, first of all, are saying to them, uh, and I know this because there's a founder we have in our community and she's working on an app for women with Parkinson's to track their symptoms to quantify it and show their physicians. But should we be actually doing dose-dependent therapeutics based on your menstrual cycle? Hey, we know when your hormones are up or this phase of your cycle, these symptoms are worse. So, you know, just like your birth control pills, there's a week that has a different dosage version, right, to accommodate that. We don't have that yet in any drug, which is, um, I'm sure one day in the future, they'll be looking back at us now being like, damn, we were just drugging women. We did not, like, we were just giving it to them. It is fascinating, and there's so many different directions that we need to go that it sounds like we've barely even started. Yeah, and pharma, come on, you're going to make so much money, right? Now you got additional drugs you can sell, right? <laughs> additional dosages. Like, this is opportunity. I think yes, Femtech absolutely. just jumped to, to $2 trillion. <laughs> It's going up as <laughs> yep. we speak. Now, Brittany, you have an overview of so many startups that are going on right now. Are any of them uh, in the direction of sustainability? We have to ask because we're the green Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, as I was preparing for this interview, I already knew that we do have some segments in in Femtech that would address this specifically. And I'd like to bring a few of those up. One is sustainable pads and tampons. So I'd like to dive into that and talk about some companies that are innovating in that space. And then also um, logistics. So, you know, when we think about natural disasters and we think about what is the infrastructure of female health, how are we taking into those things into account? So that's what I'd love to talk about. Please do. All right. Well, first up, I don't know if y'all knew that it takes an average of 500 to 800 years for a menstrual pad or tampon to be decomposed. So long, long, long after we're here, and actually, like, long, long, long before we were here, right? Like, tampons were invented, like, 50 years ago or something. So, I mean, we're going to have a lot of them for a long, long time because pads can contain up to 90% of plastic. I didn't realize how much plastic is actually in a menstrual pad, and all of that is ending up in landfills. In fact, um, there's 300 pounds of uh, waste produced by a single menstruator in their lifetime. 300 pounds. It's about nine to 10,000 pads and tampons in their lifetime. So like a ton of landfill um, is happening, especially when you consider 26% of the global population is menstruating. Okay, I'll say that again. 26% of the global population is menstruating. That's about 800 million people per day are bleeding. 800 million people a day. That's a lot of people in the world, okay? And we're just throwing it into these landfills. And even if it's considered recyclable, because I know some, some companies have started to do that, if there's any blood on it, it gets exempted from the recycling process. And for those who've never put a tampon in, if you're actively bleeding, you put the plastic applicator in, you pull it out, it has blood on it. And so even if you're trying to do right by the environment by recycling it, it's still it's still not working. Um, and so we have about 20 billion sanitary pads in North America alone going to landfills every year. 
Every year, 20 billion sanitary napkins going to landfill in America just alone. And so I'm really excited to tell you about some awesome femtech companies that are addressing this issue specifically. Do you have any comments or questions about those stats? Have you ever heard those? No, it's kind of mind-blowing. As we think about the single-use plastic topic, it typically is, you know, outside of medicine, things like uh, straws and maybe, you know, some plastic cups. Within medicine, most of the focus that I've heard has been more on, yeah, I guess reducing waste, but nothing at the scale that you're talking about with uh, the tampons. You know, it might be, like, we use plastic speculums, or at least a lot of uh, gynecology uses plastic speculums. There's a lot of plastic piping just in, in healthcare. But, you know, as I heard your numbers, I was thinking this has got to be, if not the number one, you know, kind of bin for single use plastic in healthcare, it's got to be in the top, you know, top, top two or it's, three. It's definitely in like, a t- I think I saw, and I'm, don't quote me on this one, y'all, but it's definitely like a top 10 landfill product. It, it's, um, I was reading some articles about people cleaning up beaches. And isn't this funny how taboo menstruation is? How often do you see somebody on a beach holding up a used tampon, you know, with a glove on, hopefully, but you're right. Like you never see that. You see the straw, right? You don't see the tampon applicator. And I think there's like censorship even within that, that, um, lets us not even be aware of the impact because we're not watching videos about, you know, a tampon applicator coming out of a turtle's nose, right? Like that was (laughs) ignited that whole thing. Um, but if we stopped censoring these products and had more open conversations, maybe we'd realize how big of an impact it really is. So some solutions we have, Things like alternatives to pads and tampons. So you have things like washable pads. Some companies that are working on this, one is called Isle. It's out of Canada, spelled A-I-S-L-E. They have some really awesome, fashionable, reusable, washable pads that you can use. That's great sustainability. There's another company doing that called Days for Girls. They specialize, though, in girls in um, underserved countries where it's also very, very, very taboo. And they also need to kind of hide their pads in a way that looks just like a piece of fabric. But also the reason that they are not handing out menstrual cups to these girls is because the economics isn't there, the hygiene isn't there, menstrual cups, which essentially is um, a device that is literally like a little cup that goes into the vagina and sits right below the cervix and has a little ring that you can pull out. And then you're supposed to pour out the blood and then you're supposed to wash it, sanitize it, boil it these girls do not have access to those types of things. And so cups, although a nice idea in order to provide products to these underserved populations, not actually feasible or hygienic. So these washable pads, though, are a good direction. Another thing is, as as I was just mentioning, cups. So, you know, if you're uh, in North America and can afford a $50, $30 to $50 cup, that'll last you about three years. That will obviously dramatically decrease the number of waste products that you're putting out into the world. But you, you do need to have some privilege there in terms of that economic potential to purchase one and then being able to be hygienic and washing it and boiling it. And companies like Flex are doing a really great job. In fact, um, Flex is one of the menstrual product companies that I think is the most bullish on their sustainability. Like they are femtech, but right there and then all of their commercials are about like them being on a beach, right? And so I think that's really cool branding between those two. Um, another version is period underwear. So you have companies like Thinks and Modi Body where you essentially, they look like underwear and you can menstruate right in it and it has absorbent material to, to catch it. Now, eventually these underwear have to go out into the trash. And so, and I'm not even going to get into the chemicals that potentially are being used to absorb these pads and uh, withstand the washing and drying machine. But Real quick financial fact there, Modi Body exited for over $100 million. Guess how much they fundraised? $100,000. Talk about a return. Talk about a return on investment. They, they That exit last year totally screwed all my data up because it's something crazy like a 1,500-fold return on investment, and investors are looking for 10-folds. And so I have like this one outlier period underwear. Um, so fun fact, if you want to make money, invest in Femtech, by the way. Um, And then we have companies that are working on pads and tampons, but that are sustainable. So it's really cool. We have people coming up with what other products can we use besides cotton and plastic. So we have a company called, it's pronounced Wild, but it's V-Y-L-D. It's out of Berlin. They're making pads and tampons out of seaweed. 
Yeah. Pretty cool, I'm still right? Wrapping my head around the image of the turtle with the tampon. Uh, <laughs> and, and now we got now we've got a happy turtle with seaweed around its neck. Yeah, I'm thinking like, now this is like its natural habitat. It's a uh, yeah, yeah. So how did they come up with yeah? How did they come up with seaweed? What a fascinating connection. I mean, it's uh, once it's a perfect femtech story. Two young Gen Z females who are menstruators and said, um, "This is unacceptable. We want to live a sustainable life." And you know, went to school for science and discovered seaweed had these properties and they're going down that path. And that's actually a very common femtech story. Uh, a woman experiences an issue, looks for a solution, can't find any and realizes no one's even considered it or thought about it. And she's so she's empowered enough in today in the 21st century. Now we have enough gender equality enough not not perfect but enough that women have some potential to actually take matters into their own hands now so that's what we're seeing a lot of times so we got seaweed based oh nate were you gonna yeah, say well, something about so, the turtle uh, again no no i, I think I'm, I'm past the turtle now <laughs> I've, you're blowing my mind in other ways but I, i've wrapped it around the turtle uh i, I want to keep hearing about these uh kind of sustainability in the ethos of the companies and you know specifically the products that are uh like, you know, eco-friendly. But I just want to pause for a second on what you mentioned about the female founders, because that's a huge part of the femtech story, right? Like, what it, it's well over half. What, what percentage of femtech companies? 85% yeah. of our female, of our founders are female. I don't know any other industry that's like that. I don't know any other tech industry where 85% of your founders are female. And I think it's beautiful. And I think it's awesome. And it's led to an industry that's based on collaboration. I've never worked. I, I haven't signed an NDA in like three years. Like, this is the most collaborative, open-minded, purpose, like passion over profits industry I've ever met. I love it. It's amazing. Well, the collaboration is no surprise. And actually, one of the things I've noticed in my years around the climate movement is that I don't know the number, but I'm guessing it's three quarters or more of, of the people that are really making stuff happen are women. And so cool. again, being an OBGYN, uh, you learn very on and you, even prior to internship that, that women have tremendous capacity uh, to endure and to create magical things. And I, I've always said that I don't think Mother Nature gave the responsibility of birth and raising the next generation with the flip of a coin. I think women were aptly Ooh. chosen. So. Oh, man, I love that. And seahorses somehow ended up over there. But uh, um, all these products are hopefully helping the seahorses, too. So another product is called Viv for Your V. Another Gen Z uh, um, girl who was in college needed to make a business project and got totally passionate, made a company out of it. Viv for Your V is uh, bamboo-based pads. So another really sustainable uh, product in the world. Then we have things like Planera. P-L-A-N-E-R-A. Planera is out of London, and it's the first ever flushable pad and flushable tampon. So first and foremost, let me tell you, I've been a tampon user my whole menstruating life. I did not know we were not allowed to flush those down the toilet. I did not. No one told no one gave me the MO. And so when I interviewed the founder of Planera on my own podcast and she was like, you know how you're not allowed to do that. And I'm like, I've been I've been flushing them for years. I didn't even know that. Um, so I didn't see that direction on the Tampax back. So when you flush it, it ends up into the water systems and can cause, first of all, just infrastructure problems. But it actually does not degrade. I thought it was like paper or cotton that would like disintegrate it doesn't it doesn't and so she's actually made the first ever pad and tampon that if you put in the put it in the toilet the the movement of the water flushing it actually tears it up which is actually really hard to do how can you have something in a body receiving blood and you know having a woman working out and running doing all these things and it's in it's stable yet when she puts it in the toilet and flushes it, it immediately degrades. Like that's some cool engineering. So that's another one. Another water soluble one is Day, D-A-Y-E. They came out with the first ever CBD infused tampon, which is pretty cool for uh, localized pain moderation. But they just came out with a water soluble applicator for a tampon. So after, so you can actually put that in the toilet as well. And, it, and they have little videos right now on TikTok and stuff of putting an applicator in a, in a glass of water and it disintegrating. So we have some really, really smart, badass female founders out there that are using new high tech stuff to come up with these products that hopefully will help not only the female humans, but um, the Mother Earth. 
Well, Brittany, I've got to tell you, that message about disposal of tampons was nowhere in medical school or residency either. So, you know, okay. we, we, have, yeah. <laughs> we have a huge missed opportunity, it sounds like here, with not only just the the potential waste of all this stuff, but the education of a whole pipeline. No pun intended there with the pipes that it clogs. Yeah, I mean, I thought that would be rude to the folks that were cleaning the sanitary disposables. You know, I thought that was literally only for like the packaging of it. I didn't know you and for pads because I'm like, all right, this obviously has sticky stuff on it. Like this definitely doesn't go in the toilet. But tampons, I, I've been flushed. I've flushed thousands, admitted. You the know? only reason I, I knew something about this is is I've been in gas station bathrooms off and on in the course of my life. And there's always a sign above the toilet that says, do not flush your feminine products there. But that's the only time, like you say, Nate, you and I have been through, you know, four years of residency training where it's all about the health care of women. And, you know, menstruation is a big part of our training and our and our conversations. It's never been talked about. So you're yeah. bringing so many things to light that are so long mm-hmm. overdue. We are approaching uh, probably the end of this interview pretty soon. We've gone to, we have to have you back because there's so many things we've just <laughs> begun to talk about. But we have to have you tell your listeners, tell our listeners about your earrings and the anatomically correct t-shirt that you're wearing. Well, I am a femme fan through and through, as I like to call my listeners. And uh, yeah, I think that when you wear things like uterus earrings or uterus t-shirts, uh, people people know that you're someone you can talk to. And so I love to run around my life with, you know, like 3D printed uh, pregnancy bodies and 3D printed breasts. And I have a mug here that says the original 3D printer and it has a uterus on it. So, I mean, the branding is strong, really strong. I, I can't believe I don't have a tattoo yet. That's probably next. <laughs> well, I guess... Somebody could push back if they really didn't have any any connection to a uterus, but there ain't a soul alive or ever has been that didn't spend time in one. So it's a familiar place. It's, it was home for everybody. <laughs> Let's all go back home, y'all. <laughs> yeah, well, Brittany, we'll, we'll definitely have you back on because we, we really want to get into the AI part. Uh, there's there's so yeah. much to unpack there. There's a lot of implications Artificial there. intelligence. Yeah, totally. And we'll, we'll save it for next episode also, but I, I wanted to get into uh, the history of your uh, Faramore DNA-based app, which, uh, you know, I know has a, there's a lot to talk about that and also, and how it has even implications for you know, how we it actually has a lot of women's control. health implications. Yeah, about birth control and attraction. Yeah, stay tuned, y'all. Stay tuned. <laughs> well, you are leading a revolution. Uh, first of all, in in championing uh, the the necessary move of medical research to actually start to study women and 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 uh, investigate all the different ways that healthcare needs to adjust to that. And you're hearing this from yeah. two OBGYNs. So. I mean, I, I think of you as a, a revolutionary in the most positive sense. You're sort of the the Paula Revere of uh, of the future of women's health care. And I think that benefits environmentally, although they have not been documented yet, are going to are going to come because uh, for so many reasons, personalization and empowerment uh, and and opening access to care and better data is got to lead to better outcomes, which ultimately lead to. Uh, fewer uh, impacts on the economy. There's so many good things that have come from this. So I, I hope your mother's proud of you. She certainly should be. Yeah, she also has a lot of questions. She's like, <laughs> that was menopause? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks, guys. You guys are doing great work, too. Appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks, Brittany. Welcome back. That was an amazing interview with Brittany. I'm sure your minds are blown like ours with all the different startups and companies and options and opportunities that the femtech revolution promises. Uh, I think for our patients, uh, what I'd hope you take from this is it's time to start looking into this uh, and and uh, perhaps taking advantage of some of the apps that are out there. Uh, talk to your doctor and find out what they recommend. Make sure that they are, are getting up to speed and this uh, an amazing uh, evolution of healthcare, personalization and empowerment that comes along with uh, what Brittany was talking about. 
Yeah, and there were so many uh, sustainable or eco-friendly products that Brittany mentioned. Uh, one topic we didn't get into as much was uh, sunscreen. And uh, perhaps that doesn't have as much of a telehealth connection, but certainly it has a connection to uh, uh, our patients. And uh, this summer that's upon us, you know, it, it's a big consideration for summer health. So if especially for, for pregnant women or women thinking about coming pregnant, the kind of sunscreen to look for would be things that avoid certain chemicals. Uh, these have very long, complicated names sometimes, but they're things like oxybenzoin, uh, oxonate, and uh, avobenzoin. Also, for a simpler label to look for, uh, parabens-free uh, will typically have fewer endocrine-disrupting chemicals and therefore less impact on your hormonal system. Uh, and in general, the phrase fragrance-free is better than unscented. Uh, fragrance-free will also tend to have fewer phthalates, which can disrupt hormones like estrogen. Uh, and a, a final thing to mention, uh, Brittany talked about a, uh, conversations with the FDA and a lot of kind of legislative avenues to uh, bring women's health really to the forefront of research to then you know allow better decision-making. Uh, one such bill that's put forward, uh, before Congress right now is called Advancing Safe Medication for Moms and Babies Act. It's kind of an easy one to remember. Whether you pay attention to that bill specifically uh, or just more broadly, recognize these are going to be more and more uh, kind of in the news. And uh, you may consider which elected officials you want to support based on uh, whether they take notice of this. And then in our segment that we call Obstetrics 2.0, basically obstetrics for the modern age, uh, I, I think this time it's a call out to clinicians, people providing care for women and for pregnancy. Uh, we're really entering a golden age of gynecology. There have been so many advances in medicine uh, and in surgery, minimally invasive surgery. Uh, and now with the arrival, I think, uh, even in early stages of femtech, uh, the combination of all these plus uh, artificial intelligence, all the technology that is going on around healthcare, uh, there are so many ways that we can help promote outcomes uh, or prevent bad outcomes uh, that we did that we never had before. So I think it's really time if you are taking care of patients to embrace uh, as overwhelmed as I'm sure you are on a regular basis to to learn about these new options and be open to trying things, to sharing them with patients. Uh, in addition to helping improve outcomes. Uh, both in pregnancy and just women's health in general. It's also an opportunity, I think, uh, to take some of the work away from you because fewer patients getting sick, the more patients are empowered individually. Uh, the fewer phone calls and the fewer uh, emergency room visits, I think, will ultimately result. So there's a real tremendous promise to this era, but it is going to require us uh, to, to think differently. Uh, to open our minds to some of these things. And obviously not all of them are going to pan out, but I think in general, the direction we're heading in is uh, revolutionary and something to be really excited about. Uh, so that's that's my focus when I think about obstetrics moving into the future. Nate, would you add anything to that? Yeah, and really, you know, the future is now. Uh, we heard Brittany provide some really uh, astounding statistics about the waste and the uh, lifespan of the feminine care products. I, I know that as doctors, we don't talk to our patients necessarily a lot about, uh, say, you know, personal care products they use at home, but I don't see any reason why we shouldn't at least mention it. Uh, and if nothing else, we should be aware ourselves and perhaps be telling our patients not to flush certain parts of them because they stick around to the pipes and they stick around in landfills. And we have so many better options that are all going to be listed there in the show notes. Uh, and that's the final push. So now it's time for a mocktail. What do you have? Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, it's, a, it's a hot day here in Southern California. So I went for a, a mock gin and tonic. Uh, it is the same company that I think we talked about last time, the Drink Monday. This is their, their uh, non-alcoholic gin and mixed it with some tonic water and, and got a, a, lem, uh, a lime in it. What do you have? Well, I looked around and, and I also keyed off the fact that it's finally summer and we've got a beautiful day. And I was in the 
local liquor store that I buy wine from, and they recommended this French sparkling cider called Duché de Longueville. So I'm going to have some French sparkling cider. They said it's very popular. I, I wish the audience could see Bruce about to open this this champagne-ish bottle that looks like it's going to explode. <laughs> there it went. <laughs> yeah, for once I didn't have an overflow of a champagne-like beverage. Ooh, it has a lovely color. It kind of looks like a finely carbonated golden, almost like a beer color. It has a very much an apple aroma to it and a right. fine bit of carbonation on the top. What about yours? Yeah, you are treating this like a glass of champagne, like a wine tasting. Well, cheers. I got to say, mine is is very straightforward. This tastes a lot like a gin and tonic. Like of all the ones we've tried so far, if you were to have done a blind tasting, I think I wouldn't be able to figure out which, like I, I wouldn't just instantly know this was the, uh, the mocktail version. It tastes really close. And this tastes like a sparkling cider, which means it doesn't taste like an alcoholic beverage, but it's very refreshing and uh, adult looking. I got no complaints. This goes very well with a sunny Friday afternoon by the beach. Yeah, I think we're kind of seeing that for some of these uh, non-alcoholic spirits, it really is about how you mix it. You know, they're maybe not meant to be drank straight, uh, many of them. But if you if you prepare a cocktail with a few ingredients, it actually it, it gets it gets pretty good. Well, speaking of things to enjoy, a new episode of Green Docs will be out very soon, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listening content. Or you can stop by our website, Green Docs Podcast, all one word, greendocspodcast.com. You can check out the show notes from this episode and all the links that we're uh, going to mention, including the companies that Brittany talked about. Send us comments, submit your questions. We hope to see you there. And of course, for more Femtech content, uh, you can check out uh, all of Brittany Barreto's episodes at Femtech Focus Podcast. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picard and Nate DiNicola and produced by John Beethan of ImaginePodcasting.com. Go check out our website, www.greendocspodcast.com. Like, subscribe, share, and tell your friends out there on the beach. Bye.